Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now today, as we approach the first anniversary of the arrival in these shores of the coronavirus, my guest is Dr Orla Healy, who's a public health specialist and chief operations officer and leading on the COVID response with the HSE in the South and Southwest. Orla, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mick. Nice to be here. Orla, I suppose just to set the scene for where we're at now, um, it appears that the third wave of the virus is receding and the distribution of the vaccine, we've begun to ramp it up. Uh, are there reasons for cautious optimism? Yes, there certainly is cause for cautious optimism. But, you know, to quote public health colleagues, it's not really a question of optimism or pessimism. It's realism is what we need here. It's been a tale of three surges and we're certainly on the downward slope of the third surge. We're at a level now that we haven't seen since last October. But as the levels drop, they become slower. The peak is, is it's slower to drop as the figures um, become that bit lower. So while there is cause for optimism that we have once again regained a level of control and also that we're ramping up our vaccination, A, that we have access to a vaccine within a year of the, the disease being identified and B, that we've we've administered well over a quarter of a million doses in, in this country already. Um, that is a cause for optimism, but this pandemic is far from over. Yeah, and you mentioned, just you mentioned the kind of slow uh, decline of the numbers. Is any of that down to the nature of the variant that it's, it's so strong? Yeah, well, certainly the new variant is now dominant. And we've seen that in the course of, of the first three weeks of this year, the UK variant or the B117 variant went from 10% to 70% in the space of three weeks so the steepness of the curve, the numbers involved and, and the speed at which it rose certainly has had an impact and will take a while to come down from that. In terms of hospitals, Orla, I mean, do you think in terms of the peak pressure point there that we've passed that as well? Yeah, the hospitals just reflect what's happening in the community at any, at any given time, albeit with a lag and a, a lag of a week or so and a further lag um, in ICU usage. So for us as, as a hospital group, and I, I'm obviously more familiar with, with my own hospital, we would have peaked in the first surge around the 10th of April at 103 cases in hospital. Then in surge two, we would have peaked at 60 in towards the end of October. And this time round, at the end of January, around 23rd, 24th of January, we had, um, we had 446 inpatients. And today we're down to, I think it's about 100 and, 100, less than 150 cases. Now, we're not counting the cases that are more than, than two weeks old. So there's probably maybe that a 10%, 10% more patients in hospital than that who've previously had COVID. But certainly the numbers have dropped. 
the numbers in ICU remain stubbornly high, actually, because patients tend to stay in, in ICU for longer periods of time. No, one aspect to that, I just wonder, Orla, as the vaccine is rolled out further, and as we know, it's going to be the older, more, more vulnerable population that are going to get it first. Will, at that stage, the prevalence of the virus within hospitals no longer reflected in the community because those would be more susceptible to being hospitalised, hopefully would be vaccined. That is the hope. The aim of vaccination is to reduce mortality and morbidity. And we have prioritised those most at risk and those who suffered most. So those in residential care settings and healthcare workers were amongst the first to get it. And we're nearing completion of those cohorts of the population and we've now moved into the over 85s at home the over 70s starting with the over 85s um, and we should see those vaccinated in the next three weeks or so certainly there are promising indications coming out of um, Israel and other countries that are a bit ahead of us where they've shown a reduction in hospitalizations and a reduction in the severity of the illness in the older age groups and that's over and above what they can attribute to the lockdown or cocooning so it probably is attributable to the vaccination however there was a relative increase in the younger age groups who weren't vaccinated in those circumstances and there's also complacency is the enemy here really so so people just at this critical point when people think that that the vaccine is is conferring a level of protection the guard is dropped and we are months and years away from that level of um of easing of restrictions really I suppose that was an element of things that happened at Christmas, I suppose, on some level, apart from the the variant and what have you, the opening up. There was, I would suggest, a feeling among certain people, certain cohorts of people, that sure, the the cavalry's on the way, the vaccine's coming, we're sorted, we can let the guard down. I mean, the danger of that kind of thinking, that's still prevalent and, and, and it's important, I suppose, to be aware of it in the coming months. It's absolutely essential that we don't drop our guard. And the other thing that we need, we're very fortunate in this country and we're fortunate in Europe. We're a first world country and we have access to this vaccine, but this is a global pandemic. So we really need to think beyond our borders and we're not going to be protected until the world is protected because virus spreads while it has a host. And this virus will have a host while people either haven't acquired a natural immunity or aren't vaccinated, the virus will spread. And as the virus spreads, new variants will emerge. This is perfectly natural thing for viruses to do. That's what happens with viruses as they circulate. So there have been new variants every day, every week, new variants have been notified to the WHO. And at the moment, we're aware of at least four variants of concern. We have the UK variant, we've got a variant from West Africa and from Brazil. But the South African variant is is one of particular concern at the moment because that appears to be the one that isn't as protected by, by the current vaccine. Now, that's not to cause alarm because the vaccine can be tweaked um, and these new vaccines can be tweaked and the flu vaccine is, is tweaked on an annual basis as, as the circulating virus changes. But you can't drop your guard in the meantime. So nobody's protected till everybody's protected. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And I, I suppose in that vein, you know, there's a, a forecast and a plan to some extent that the vast majority of the population, at the very least, 
will be vaccinated by hopefully September, possibly October, whatever, but just in, in, in broad terms around it. Would you envisage beyond that um, the likes of the protections, the social distancing, the mask wearing and that, would you envisage that continuing for however long after that, even though perhaps everyone is vaccinated? Or would you see there being a very quick return to normality of the past? No, I think these are extraordinary circumstances. I think there's a there's a way to go yet. This is far from over. I know we're sick of it. I know that, that people are exhausted. There's pandemic exhaustion. Resilience is running low. But now it's not, it's not the time for complacency. New variants will emerge. As I said, we have to look beyond our own borders. I know people advocate for zero COVID, but that's really not practical in this country. Our hope is to get the levels as low as we possibly can and keep them low. And and that's going to be by, by use of, of public health measures and, and a level of restriction and travel control. You'd see those personal social distancing and those kind of measures, you would see them persevering beyond where, where there's a critical mass and whatever vaccinated or, or even fully vaccinated population? I think th- there will have to be a degree of it. I, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and I can't really predict behaviours and clearly there will be some relaxation, but there is very strong evidence about the protective effect of wearing masks at this stage and hand hygiene. And while there's a possibility of, of a circulating virus and new variants, then then a risk exists while we share the same airspace or breathe the same air as as the people around us. Okay, and the vaccine itself, or the rollout of it. I mean, and we we, we know now we, we they're set up the 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 sequence that it's going to be done and the various cohorts of the population. Do you see any pressure points in that plan? It's already dependent on supply, but I would have to say that that the response has been very agile to date. You know, there was a change in in the advice in regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine for the for the over seventies cohort, um, a week or so, and the system responded quite quickly to that. Our response has been has been swift and has been agile, and the the refusal has been has been very low to date. Um, in fact, I mean, the the demand far outstrips the supply at this stage, and certainly from within from within our own cohort and healthcare workers, the refusal has been less than one percent, is the figure that I've seen quoted, and that's been for valid reasons. It's not refusal as such; it's for for reasons of pregnancy or or exposure to the disease or known contact. You know, those very valid reasons. I can see a risk of um, of vaccine preference and um, slipping in between various vaccines. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, yeah. And that's particularly the case because now with this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's not, it hasn't been given the OK yet, but they're, they're predicting they will. And the Taoiseach is suggesting the other day that it may well be here by April. I mean, if you get to a stage where people are saying, well, I'd like that one now because it's only one shot, could that present some problems? I think most people are sensible about this and, and that the, you just take the the vaccine, they're all good vaccines. They're all highly effective. You take the one that's available to you as soon as it becomes available to you. I think that people will take that pragmatic approach for the most part. And for people who choose not to, there'll be plenty others to take to take up to take up the vaccine in their place. And what about a scenario, for example, if somebody said they had to travel <laughs> and 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 they were traveling in uh, within a week or two? Do you know what I mean? Are people? The, the various reasons why 
they should get the one shot vaccine as opposed to the two. I mean, I I, I know in general terms that wouldn't be entertained, but th- would you see there'd be a scenario where that kind of situation could arise? I'd have to admit it's not something that I'd consider, like so I wouldn't dare to comment on it. It's not something that has entered my consciousness, so... Right. You don't envisage there being any issue around that thing of whether various sections of society or whatever will push for getting the the handier vaccine, to put it that way. I think those vaccines are more appropriately distributed um, in the third world, actually. And while we will have access to that, it's it's a question of of need and and appropriateness. The mRNA vaccines are tricky and complex to store and to transport and to administer. um, And so therefore, it's appropriate that healthcare systems that can handle them would distribute them. Whereas whereas vaccines that are single dose vaccines um, and that are that are easier to transport um, morally and ethically and logistically, it's it's better to distribute those um, to, to less privileged um, and developing countries. Definitely. And the other thing that arises there just with the development, I mean, first of all, it was so quickly we saw vaccines develop in the first place and then we become used to the idea of a two shot vaccine. And now it would appear that this is, I mean, is this a sign that vaccines are going to develop at a much quicker pace in the first instance, in relation to this virus and, and perhaps vaccines more generally, apart from that? Yeah, I think these were exceptional circumstances. And certainly, I mean, who could have dreamt that we'd have the vaccine this quickly? But th- there were a few reasons for that. So there's, there was a huge international collaboration to develop them in the first instance. So you had the greatest minds in, in the world and scientists concentrating on this and working together to develop them. The phases and the, and the trialing happened in parallel as opposed to sequentially. So you will have seen that the trucks were packed and, and ready to go in advance as the vaccines were being approved. But also another important factor is that is that the trials reached their end point quite soon because of the level of circulating disease in the community. So they were able to produce the evidence quite quickly because there was so much virus around. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. There's so much of it there that plenty of material to go on effectively. Yeah, so they they reached the end point sooner in those in those large trials. You know, if you were comparing the number of people who became infected as an end point, and you were comparing those who had the vaccine and and who had the placebo, because there were so many people becoming infected, it was quite you could you could make that comparison sooner. And you're you're up to three or four now. I mean, would you envisage that there be there be more vaccines again? Oh yeah, there are. There, are, yeah, there are several in the pipeline. I mean, there's the Johnson vaccine. You've mentioned the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Yeah, there, there are multiple manufacturers. I mean, this, this probably will be like the flu in years to come. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is, is it too early to say what kind of frequency the vaccine might have to be taken at? We don't know yet. We don't know how long the, the immunity lasts. Like the, the evidence emerging now is that natural immunity is lasting for up to up to five months. And certainly the evidence, the evidence is emerging. So it's, it's, it's too early to say what, what the frequency and, and also it depends on the, on the variants as well and the emergence of new variants. Yeah, God, there's a lot of it out there. Um, as I mentioned, Orla, we're coming up to one year anniversary and I'm very late coming to this particular thing myself, but recently I saw that movie Contagion and I think for anybody who hasn't seen it, to, to see it in the current circumstances is a real eye-opener because it's about 10 years old. The plot centres around a worldwide virus and the reaction to it scientifically, socially, etc. And 
at the time, prior to a year ago, I think some of us might have viewed it as some form of science fiction, which we certainly don't know. But I'm just wondering, for people like yourself in public health, was the threat of something like this happening? Was it always considered a real danger or was it like, because among the rest of the population, I don't think we did consider such a thing a real danger. But was it always something that was modelled for, was considered that this is very possible, that we could face something like this someday? Yes, it was, actually, yes. Like, I cut my teeth on, on the first SARS um, outbreak in, in China way back in, what, 2003. And then we had we had MERS-CoV um, in, in the Middle East in 2011, from what I can recall. And we had the swine flu. So these global emerging global threats um, have have always been on the minds of uh, of the public health community, and we do have international health regulations for that reason, and we have you know we have notifiable diseases within our own country, and we have the international um, health regulations and emergency planning for that very reason. Did it unfold along lines that? public health experts would have expected or was there a lot of surprises in there even for people who, who were familiar with the concept in retrospect everything is 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 kind of obvious but that's you know the retrospect scope singularly useless tool but um yeah it, it it did um yeah to a level it it it, it is following a predictable pattern yes does this experience mean that the the type of modeling and the type of preparedness in the future will be very much more ramped up. Oh, I think, uh, yes, I, I, I do think that it, it is something of a game changer for, for all of us. And even within the acute hospital system, it has expedited and forced changes that we'd, more or less overnight, that we'd, that we'd been talking about um, for years. So things like um, virtual outpatients, um, infrastructural developments, ramping up, our um our infection prevention and control our our lab capacity our testing and tracing and i think the wider the wider public health infrastructure there's now a renewed focus focus on that and and the importance of it is being is being recognized and you mentioned sars and that i'm just curious whether you, you you've any handle on the countries are affected by pandemics like that. Following it, did, did it change the nature of their public health infrastructure? It did. It, it well, it, it, and their health service in general, and certainly um, when we had time to look at these things back in the first surge, you know, places like like Singapore that that would have been badly affected um, back in two thousand and three were in a far better, and and Canada was badly affected back then as well, um, and certainly they were in a much better state of readiness. Not that anybody. Was, was fully prepared for for a global pandemic in, in 2020. In that vein, so presumably you would envisage that our public health infrastructure will, if not necessarily face an overhaul, but certainly there'd be more resources geared towards it on the basis of... I think the resourcing of, of certainly our testing and tracing has, has ramped up significantly and 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 I would expect the, the public health workforce, the, it, that... That has been ramped up as well in response to the pandemic, and and I would expect a degree of permanency to that. Obviously, we're not going to be operating at pandemic levels forever, but but certainly it, it is going to bring about changes. And finally, Orla, when we look into the future and hopefully we're towards the end of this year, we saw how quickly people were able to uh, readjust to some extent. Some people, in in terms of last Christmas, fast forward twelve months. Do you think we'll be back 
at some form of normality as we knew it prior to the pandemic? I think there's a, a long tail on this one, Mick, I'm afraid. I, I didn't even mention um, all the people who've died and their families and, and people who've been bereaved and experienced grief in a way that we've just never experienced in this country. And I think that's that's going to take its toll. I think to a large extent, people haven't had the opportunity to reflect on the impact of it as yet. I was I was looking at a, at a, a US study today based on a, a survey dating back to, to 2017, I think of about 3 million healthcare workers, mainly nurses, and they cited about 9% of people had resigned or moved their jobs in at the time of the survey. And a third of them had, that's 3% of the total, had attributed it to burnout. And and I think we're going to experience a very high degree of burnout um, amongst our own staff now. We need to be mindful of burnout amongst healthcare workers at this stage because it has placed them under unprecedented pressure with competing priorities, the challenge of the pandemic, um, managing COVID patients, trying to manage non-COVID illness, the risk, the physical the physical demands of having to wear PPE on a daily basis, the, the heat and the weight of that of that that PPE alone, um, the the lack of human contact, dealing with very sick patients who are dying on their own, for instance, or who are who are who are sick and and don't have their family members with them to comfort them, all of that is going to take its toll on 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 staff when you combine their personal circumstances, the work pressures, and the wider societal um, pressures of the pandemic. So I think that's going to impact us for quite a while. I think it's going to take us quite a while to catch up with our non-COVID illness. We've been relatively fortunate um, in that we've maintained a level of urgent cancer work and other non-cancer urgent work throughout the course of the pandemic. But certainly diagnosis will have been delayed as people are hesitant to, to go to their own doctor. So their, so their diagnosis will have been delayed um, and to a lesser extent their treatment. And then there's the, the non-urgent um, burden of morbidity that's that's been building up over over the past year and um, so it's, it's going to take us a while to um to catch up on that and the and the other piece is the is the people who survive covid and and require a level of, of rehabilitation um, and that's that's something of a long haul for those patients as well so um so while 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 some people may bounce back and you know we saw people bounce back at christmas this is far from over Yes, it's a very good point. And I suppose the, the, the other part is in terms of in, in, in wider society, mental health and, and, and the effects that the whole thing has had on that and that could linger a long time as well. Yes, absolutely. The, the the impact of lockdown and it's affected it's it's affecting everybody. It's affecting every age group. There there isn't a single age group or a single cohort that isn't impacted by this. Like elderly people who are, are isolated, you know, I mean, how long is it since since any of us have seen our, our parents, you know, our surviving parents, um children who are you know, at missing out on exams and school and games and, uh, you know, young teenagers or people in their 20s who are, who are missing out on the, these rites of passage, you know, moving from national school to secondary school or from secondary school to college. So everybody's impacted by this. Yeah, it's going, it's going to take, um, it's going to take a while. There's no question about that. Do you envisage at all, Orla, anything positive coming out of it in terms of how we approach health issues, how we approach society in general? 
Every challenge brings an opportunity and the esprit de corps within within healthcare workers has been has been phenomenal. And and as I said, the the new ways of working, the the um the scientific advancement, the the infrastructure developments, the um the focus on public health, the the rebalancing of our of our values. Do you know? I think I think that there are huge benefits um with it also. It's just that one doesn't want to to um, to ignore the the personal impact for for people who have suffered. Well, of course, but as you say, it's just uh, hopefully our values in particular. If, if it does something in that respect, be no bad thing for society. Absolutely, absolutely, that is the hope. That's the hope indeed. Orla Healy, Orla, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Mick. Thank you. Uh, I also want to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you for listening, folks. Um, Get the podcast on the usual platforms and we'll see you again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.